electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. I'm Scott Wapner, and you're listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast, the most profitable hour of the trading day. We record this live weekdays at 12 Eastern. Listen in. Carl, thank you very much, and welcome, everybody, to the Halftime Report, right at the halfway point of the year. In for Scott Wapner, I'm Tyler Matheson. Final trading day of the month, the quarter, the first half. The major averages all posting double-digit returns so far this year, even though they've kind of lost a little foam off the top. So what's ahead for the second half? We'll debate that and where to put your money to work from this day forward. Our investment committee today, Amy Raskin, joins us on the phone, chief investment strategy officer of Chevy Chase Trust. Megan Shu, head of investment strategy at Wilmington Trust. Joe Terranova, Pete Nigerian, you know them. Let's get a check on the markets. The Dow on track for its first negative month over the past five. Uh, but as you see there, rallying 131 points so far today. S&P on pace for a fifth straight month uh, of uh, positive gains and its best first half since all the way back in 2019. It was not a very good first half last year, as you'll recall. Uh, the Nasdaq pacing for a seventh positive month in eight. Meanwhile, yields moving lower. The benchmark 10-year note hitting 1.45%. Also waiting uh, this hour on the first trade of Didi Global. It's the biggest U.S. share offering by a Chinese company since Alibaba. But our focus this hour is what's ahead for stocks in the second half of the year. Megan, why don't I start with you? What do you think? Well, we're still optimistic. We've had a great start to the year, a great first half. We think that there's further gains to be had for equities. I don't think it'll match what we've seen over the last six months or 12 months, certainly. Um, but we are still constructive. I think it'll be really important to watch what happens with, with interest rates and that 10-year yield. Today's move, I think, is uh, counter to what we expect over the next 12 months. We do see interest rates moving higher. We see the global economic recovery continuing, um, and we think that's a really solid backdrop for cyclicals and value where we have a slight uh, overweight in our portfolios. We're overweight to equities more broadly, um, and we are still constructive. There might be some choppiness ahead, um, but we would encourage our clients to look through that and use that as a possible buying opportunity. Joe, as you look to the second half, what do you expect uh, and what will you be watching? Well, Tyler, Megan mentioned yields, and that's exactly where I think you have to begin the conversation. Tyler, can you find anyone that believes yields are going to continue to move lower? A 10-year Treasury is actually going to approach 1%. So I think the, the conundrum, the puzzle really is figuring out why is a 10-year Treasury trading at 1.43%? Why did the U.S. dollar rally 2.5% this month alone? That's really going to dictate the roadmap for the second half of the year. And if you're looking at investment grade and high yield and you're looking at uh, the spread over treasuries, what you'll find is investment grade, the spread is at its lowest level since 2005. High yield, the spread is at its lowest level since 2007. 
So who's going to go and actually capture that yield? There's no appetite. There's no sentiment towards continuing to be in that fixed income trade. And to me, that's very puzzling. You had Paul Jones, uh, Jones on the network two weeks ago talking about inflation. Where is the inflation? Where is it reflected in Treasury yields? That's the roadmap for the second half of the year. I think you'd be invested in equities, but how you do it is going to be absolutely dependent upon where these 10-year yields go. And what do you think those yields will do? I mean, it is puzzling if, infl- if there are inflation uh, um, aromas in the air, why the yields are coming down, why the spreads are narrowing like that. It, it, it's, it's, listen, it's fascinating. And Tyler, I think if we conducted an exercise where we were to ask 100 so-called experts on where they think the next 25 basis points would be for a 10-year Treasury, I'm pretty sure the overwhelming majority would say it's going to be closer to 1.7 than below 1.20, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm, but yeah. unfortunately, the, the, cur- the current trend is pressing lower towards 1.20, and we have to understand or realize why is it pressing towards that low it's more than the federal reserve continuing to buy treasuries is there something going on with the delta variant is there something going on external to the u.s that's troubling markets where they're seeking that safe haven demand buying that's the puzzle i don't have the answer amy raskin do you have the answer (laughs) i'll try um i'm not sure i have the absolute answer but um I have. I definitely have some views on this. I think a lot changed when um, the Fed changed their tone about inflation, or and brought up the dot um, to 2023. I think what that message was that we were not going to let inflation run wild. Um, and I think what the market is telling you is that inflation is going to come in hot, and the Fed is going to have to act sooner rather than later. So what you saw when that happened is that the short end of the curve went up, but the long end of the curve came down, So, um, which is what you would expect uh, with the Fed saying we're not going to let inflation run away. So I, I do think that that does favor the growth trade. Um, with regard to the markets generally, um, we continue to make new highs, but under the hood, the technicals don't look great. You're not getting a lot of breath. You're not getting a lot of confirmation from 20-day highs. Um, you know, you have maximum allocation to equities for households right now. So there's a lot of optimism in the market currently. Um, and um, you are seeing sort of a breakdown of the technicals underneath. The other thing that I would add is, is growth is going to slow. We're probably at peak growth right now. Um, and that's not something that a lot of people are talking about. But once we get through this reopening period and a lot of the pent-up demand gets satisfied, you're going to see growth rates slow going into 2022, just just mathematically. You know, Pete, Jim Cramer earlier today said, don't uh, do not say just because we've had a great first half that it's time to ka-ching, ka-ching, get out. Things are ripe for a further rally. Uh, how do you react to, to, to Jim's thought there on that, Pete? And, and also, some of the hottest sectors in the first half have been, have been energy. Uh, do you expect that to continue? Yeah. Yeah, you know what? What I really like, Tyler, and, and I think this is what Jim's been alluding to a little bit as we've gotten closer to this first half end and, and we get into the second half, we're looking at a market that's had really healthy rotation, in my opinion. And we, we, the, I go back uh, about this point a year ago, give or take, and we had the, the participation of so many of those tech names, those big cap tech names, the, you know, the, the apples of the world. And 
we started to get that big move to the upside, and you, and you just wondered, well, what about the financials? What about energy? What about other parts of the market? Then we rotated. Then we had this pause for a long period of time, not with all those different names that are in the technology space, but with many of those names, the old cap tech. And now we're starting to see a little bit of movement once again. I look at energy, and I look at different parts of the market that have been really uh, unbelievable performers, and it's not just this year. It goes back really to November during the elections when we started to see this turn, and energy oil was trading around 36 bucks at the time. Here we are now pushing on 74. I know Joe and I have gone back and forth on this, and, and I think we're in agreement, but I, I don't know how much more room there is for oil to the upside, Tyler. So because of that, I think we will start to see at some point here, once we get towards 80 or above 80, I think we start to see that rotation again, moving away from certain areas that have been absolutely rocketing to the upside, and energy is definitely one of them, but maybe even financials take a bit of a pause, not a negative pause, but a pause, and we start to see that rotation go back into some of those areas that have been lagging. And, uh, you know, technology has been very strong, but semiconductors have absolutely been on fire. Now, the interesting part about that is because of all the supply constraints and everything else, I don't know that it's done for the semiconductors. I think the semiconductors, even though their SMH is pushing right on the highs, I think there's still room there because when you look at the fundamental story in a lot of those various names, it's still very inexpensive, and I think there's plenty of upside there as well. All right. Let's, uh, Megan, I want to come back. I mean, you're free to react to what Pete just said, but, but, I'm, uh, but I'm particularly interested in, in the point Joe was making a, a moment or so ago, and that is you, you, you have uh, this world where the yields are coming out. What is it, 1.44% on the 10-year uh, note right now? We've got Fed Governor Waller saying uh, a rate hike in 22, I'm not ruling it out. He wants to see things taper. So why aren't you, and you've got inflation uh, hot right now, coming in hot. Why are yields where they are? And what is it? What are those yields telling you, not just about the market, but about uh, economic risk? Yeah, well, I think what yields are telling us is that the market is a bit more concerned around some of the COVID variants, um, perhaps also seeing the global recovery lagging, because one of the reasons why we've had interest in U.S. bonds that's kept a bit of a cap on interest rates is because international yields have been so bleak. But that's not really our view. We do see um, the global economy moving beyond COVID. Um, and we see the uh, yield curve steepening and the 10-year yield heading to and possibly even beyond 2% over the next 12 months. I think the market's reaction to the last Fed meeting was probably a little bit of an overreaction in our view. And mm -hmm. to me, the point of liftoff for the Fed, in other words, the timing of their first rate hike, mm -hmm. is less important than the trajectory of rate hikes. And mm -hmm. regardless of whether they hike first in December of 2022 or February of 2023, we see a very shallow trajectory. We don't think that the Fed's priorities have changed in terms of inclusive mm -hmm. labor market growth as mm -hmm. well as inflation uh, running at or slightly above their target. So for us, we see perhaps some volatility as the market tries to get a grasp on, on what the Fed's potential policy path is. But long term, we see this being a, a bit of a reset for a much longer economic cycle. You know what I'd like to do before we drill down on sectors that you all like for the second half is I'd like to go around the horn uh, and I'm going to give you the benchmarks. And I'm, my question is this. 
Will the second half be as good as the first half, better than the first half, good but not quite as good as the first half has been, or huh. worse? So, or, or a negative uh, second half of the year. So here you go. The Dow is up 12.5% so far this year. The S&P 14.5%. The Nasdaq up 12.5%. The Russell up 17 Transport's up 19%. Uh, why don't we start with you, Amy? How do you think the second – I'm looking over here to see you, and I, but you're not there. <laughs> you're, you're on the phone. Um, uh, how do you see the second half comparing with the first? I don't think the second half is going to be as good as the first half. I don't think that we're actually going to get a down market, uh, mm-hmm. but I would I would expect us to tread water, potentially go down for a little bit, and then maybe rally it to the end of the year. Um, you know, I, I'd be much more concerned about 2022. Um, mm-hmm. So I, I just think there's too much liquidity out there. Okay. Um, too many people waiting to buy a dip um, right now. So the, I, I think I say okay, but not okay, great. but not as good as yeah. the first half. Megan, your yeah. thought on that one? I agree with that. I would say okay. I'd say positive returns for equities, mm-hmm. outpacing those of bonds, but possibly some choppiness in there that. Uh, investors are going to have to to be patient and and look through over the next the next six to twelve months. Joe, uh, I'm going to agree with what Amy said and what uh, Megan confirmed. I think the second half of the year you are vulnerable to some form of a correction that we really haven't experienced here in the last six months. But I think ultimately you will recover as we move towards the end of the year, and you'll see uh, the various indexes going out on their highs. All right. And Pete, why don't you wrap, bring us home, bring, bring us around third, bring it home. What do you see for the second half of the year? Yes. You know, good, not as good, but I do think um, I, I am still very bullish, Tyler. I think obviously we had a great start to the year, and now we'll see if we can get the second half and continue that move, uh, something close to that. And I think we will be something close to that, not quite as good. And I think part of the problem that I have going forward is, this variance uh, that, that we're seeing right now that are popping up, that, that just sort of spooks me a little bit. And, be, and because of that, I think that's going to be an area that could pop into the markets here and there and have some, ser- some effects that might last a little longer than we'd like. So because of that, if it wasn't for that, if we weren't seeing this start to pop up around globally, um, I would feel much more uh, on the side of, hey, look, we can, we can do exactly what we did in the first half. But because of that, I don't see that happening, and I think we've got ourselves a good but not great market in the second All half. All right, so there's a sort of a consensus there that, that the first half put, yep. the, put the pole in the, in the, in the ground, uh, and it'll be a good second half, but maybe not uh, up to that standard. Meantime, let's go to Julia Borston. She's got a market flash on Spotify. That's right, Tyler. Spotify shares briefly turning positive and Live Nation shares turning negative. Um, now back to the flat line on a report that Spotify is looking to get into the events business, the ticketing business. This reported by the information. The information saying that Spotify would not be directly competing with Live Nation on this. They already have a, an arrangement with Ticketmaster, which is part of Live Nation, which allows Spotify users to buy tickets to certain events. But what this would be about here is Spotify would be able to leverage its data about where people are listening to different types of music to help book different artists in regional venues. So to be able to say to an artist, you have a big fan base in the Midwest, you should be booking um, booking a, a, a performance in this in this town. So that's the kind of thing that they could be really using their leverage for. We've reached out to Spotify. We have not gotten a comment back yet, 
but we will be back to you as we learn more. It could be an interesting yeah. expansion, new revenue stream for Spotify. Yeah, it's, really, it's, you, it's an interesting uh, sort of extension of the use of data. I mean, in other words, where, where are people listening to Zach Brown Band or, or uh, uh, Chance the Rapper? Yeah, and especially, but I think Tyler's particularly for smaller artists, artists do, mm -hmm. who do not have a huge na nationwide fan base who know that they could get fans anywhere, but to have smaller artists in smaller venues. The idea is that this right. data could really pinpoint where there is a specific fan, fan base and, and which of those fans you could get into some of those smaller venues. Michael Franti, he's exactly that kind of guy. Michael Franti, I love the guy. I've seen him in concert. He's fantastic. Uh, anyhow, Julia, thanks. Let's get some uh, second half picks from our investment. Committee. I'm going to go back around the horn in reverse order from the last time. Pete, I'm going to start with you. If you were to isolate either individual names or sectors or choices for the second half, where can I make money? Well, you know, uh, last week we were talking about some of these types of names as well, Tyler. So I'll quickly go back and say Capital One, I think, is still very inexpensive. When you look at the multiple here, this is a stock credit card business. They've been around for a long time. They also got the commercial banking and customer banking, all that type of thing. It's still too cheap. I think this is a name that's going to explode to the upside even further. Microsoft, again, the cloud. They continue to uh, capture even more of a market share in the cloud. Um, and I, so because of that, I think that name is still very inexpensive. They continue to move in other areas. Satya Nadella has done an amazing job. They also, in the gaming area, they've got the subscription model that they're working on as well. There's a lot of different verticals, I think, right now for a name like Microsoft, where I think it's a $300 stock easily by the end of the year. And it's been on an absolute unbelievable trajectory. You know, there are other names also that really stand out for me. I think Facebook, you know, it, it's amazing because the verticals that Mark Zuckerberg has been able to create within that company, and obviously all the news coming from yesterday. But he's been Teflon, Tyler. When he's been in front, he's been up there more than most of the senators in front of Capitol Hill. He's been up there so many times, it's unbelievable. And each and every time that he goes up there, he continues to amaze me on how calm and his delivery and what he's been able to do. And the stock, instead of going down, has done nothing but continue to move to the upside the way it has been. And yet the cash and everything else, mm -hmm. when you look at that balance sheet, is un unbelievable. And lastly, I'll just leave you with Lockheed Martin. Too cheap. This is a great company. It's really well run. And I think this is a name that still has plenty of room to the upside going forward. All right. So what's in Pete's wallet? Facebook, Lockheed, uh, uh, Microsoft and Capital One. Joe, what's in your wallet? Well, Tyler, I want a nice diversified mix of stocks. Uh, so I'm going to go with a financial, a energy, and a hyper-growth technology stock. The first name I'll mention will be that hyper-growth technology stock, and that'll be CrowdStrike. I think on Monday I mentioned to you my final trade was Fortinet. I really believe that cybersecurity is such a overwhelming risk to the economy, the capital market, society itself. $57 billion company, CrowdStrike being, I think potentially this could be a company that is actually an acquisition target, but they are delivering the type of revenue performance uh, that really places them in the prime position uh, for cybersecurity investments that you would be making. Uh, beyond that, Goldman Sachs, here's your financial. I believe that Goldman Sachs has really, under the leadership of David Solomon, transitioned itself to one of the most diversified financials on the street. Uh, the asset management business very quietly is beginning to grow. We know about the trading revenue that they're deriving in the capital market. So there's your financial, there's your hyper growth technology. And then an energy name would be 
LNG, Chenier Energy, natural gas prices up 21% this month alone. You're looking at rising demand for liquefied natural gas. Unfortunately, the supply of vessels to deliver that LNG is diminishing. And where those vessels are going, Tyler, it's taking more time to carry. So they're going to Asia. They're going to South America. They're not going to where they traditionally were, which was Europe. That's a much quicker, shorter Mm -hmm. route, better turnaround. So as we move into 2022, the demand stays strong. The vessels are challenged. I like LNG. Chenier higher today. Goldman at session highs. Uh, Amy, your choices for the second half? Sure. I'm going to give you um, a diversified list as well. I'll start with Regeneron. I think um, this is clearly a leader in molecular medicine. The stock has done well recently, but it's still too cheap at 16 times earnings. Um, I think they proved that they're the leader when they found you know, their polyclonal antibody is the only one that really works against COVID um, in record time. So I, I really like this stock. They have a lot of shots on goal. Um, the next name I'll give you is is a growth stock as well as Stitch Fix. Um, I really like their business model. They're $6.5 billion market cap company. They have a lot of data on their customers. They know when customers buy products for them and keep them, they know who's keeping what, and they can sell other products to them using that information and data. I think this is the future of apparel retail. I, I like the name. They have to execute, but I think they're really well positioned. And then we still like energy as well. Um, even though it's had a great run, we still think there there's more room to go. The companies are being incredibly disciplined with their CapEx. Um, so one of the leaders in the energy sector um, is EOG. We like it here. You also own and have added to Fiverr. Explain to me yep. what Fiverr is and what and and why you like it. What do they do? Fiverr is a freelance marketplace. So they match companies that are looking for freelancers with um, people looking for that type of work. We think right. that we added to it in May at a really good level. We've owned it for a while. Again, this is a sub $10 billion market cap company, $9 billion market cap company, leader in its space. We think this is the way that that business is going, um, that increasingly people are going to use freelancers Mm -hmm. rather than hiring people. Um, This is the marketplace. The freelancers love it and the companies love it. And it's improving the productivity of um, of hiring. It's interesting. I, I have a friend in my neighborhood who who is a voiceover talent, and she gets gigs through Fiverr, uh, yep. and and gets a lot of them. It's people who are doing uh, voiceover for commercials or also for industrial films, things like that. Are they domiciled in the U.S. or are they foreign domiciled? They're they're an Israeli based Israeli company. company. That's what yeah. I thought. Yeah. All right. Thank yeah. you, uh, Amy. Megan, you get to be the anchor person here. The anchor woman. Go ahead. Take it away. What do you like for the second half? (laughs) Well, I'll be pretty tight here. We like financials uh, in terms of an overall sector. We're overweight to financials, specifically banks. We think that the market has gotten a little jittery about Fed policy, but we don't think it's properly priced the longevity of this cycle. And interest rates, in our view, are headed higher. So that's helpful to banks. Also, technology. Here we're neutral. But again, we think chip demand is is going to be a longer term story. The intensity of technology across different business channels is going to continue. Um, And CapEx, which we see improving, we think is going to be a big driver for technology. And the diversification benefit, by the way, of owning a a cyclical 
uh, like financials, as well as a growth-oriented sector like technology, has never been greater. So we really think it's important to be diversified, like you know, some of the other comments you heard. You know, Megan, I have to say this. I feel like I'm in my own home. We have the same cabinet hardware. I'm looking there on a white cabinet, that, that black side. I feel like I'm right, right at home. Beautiful home, by the You've way. You've got good taste. Yeah. <laughs> my wife has good taste. Right. Uh, you know, value uh, is underperforming this month. Uh, our next guest says the cyclical trade is not broken, just bent. Uh, joining us is Jonathan Krins- Krinsky, Chief Market Technician at Baycrest Partners. Uh, Jonathan, explain what you mean that the cyclicals are bent, not broken. Yeah, thanks, Tyler. So, you know, uh, in the mid, early to mid part of June, we um, turned a little bit cautious on two of the cyclical sectors, industrials and energy. Um, and they've started to show some relative weakness. They had a little bit of a, of a downdraft um, in mid-June, and then they've seen kind of a weak rally. And basically what we're seeing here is that relative strength relative to the market has started to uh, certainly lose some momentum. And, you know, so far they've just made a lower high versus their, versus their April and May highs. So that's kind of the bend part. We wouldn't say they're broken unless they break under that June correction low. Um, and, you know, really we're, we're talking about these four sectors, industrials, energy, materials, and financials. They're all trading very highly correlated. So they all have kind of a similar pattern. And we just think there's, um, you know, certainly enough weakness to kind of warrant um, at least, you know, taking a step back. But, you know, if you really want to get um, cautious on them, we'd need to see them make that uh, undercut low of the June lows. So let's talk a little bit more about industrials and then transports, rails particular. Uh, transports are up 19 percent for the year, but they're down 8 percent recently. Yeah, so it's, it really is uh, the rails that have us most concerned there. I mean, if you look at the, if you look at the weighting in the transports, um, you know, FedEx and UPS are very big weights, and those actually act a bit better. But the rails have just been one of those sectors that, um, you know, up until April or May were almost invincible. They, you know, they're, they're great trend in an absolute basis and on a relative basis um, as well. Mm-hmm. But they've started to lose some leadership. They're starting to break some trend lines. Um, again, we're, we're still above 200-day moving averages for most of the rails, so it's not, yeah. you know, it's not fatal, but I think it certainly warrants watching. And if there's some areas you know, of the market that you're looking to trim, that's kind of an area we would look at. Give me your thought on industrials, which I think you're saying remain weak and uh, you're reiterating your call to sell. And then I want to get Megan in because she's got the other side of that argument. Yeah, so we, we put out a cautious call on industrials uh, on June 10th. And, you know, they've, they've kind of come in a little bit, but it's again, it's that relative um, weakness that that has us a bit cautious, and let me just tie that in with with one area you were discussing earlier: semiconductors, which we actually um, think are now resuming leadership and mm-hmm. starting to break out. They peaked in February, and they had a 16% drawdown and a 12% drawdown. So it's not that you know industrials have to you know roll over into a huge bear market, but mm-hmm. having just peaked in in. Uh, in the, in the early part of June, you know, they could probably trade flat to lower for the next three to four months. So in some ways, it's maybe even opportunity cost um, that you could be better served elsewhere. Jonathan, thank you so much for joining us today. I'm going to let you go here so that Megan can just have at you and you're defenseless. OK, Jonathan, <laughs> have a great weekend, man. Take care. All right. Megan, you like uh, industrials. 
Yeah, but actually, I don't know that there's that much white space between um, what Jonathan just yeah. talked about and, and kind of our view, because we take uh, a nine to 12 month view. And I think we are absolutely it, it, there's a possibility of some choppiness, some higher volatility in some of these names, particularly if there is a little bit more um, kind of spookiness around the COVID strains. But we think that transports um, are supported by the strong demand for just moving goods um, and right. we think that that is playing out further in the U.S., but more importantly, internationally, we think there's a lot of room to go there. All right, folks, thanks very much. We have come to the end of our A Block. I, it's, I don't know whether this is a record, but this is a 27-minute A Block. That's pretty, that's pretty beefy, right, folks? All right, check out this mystery chart. That's a little TV talk, the A Block. It's up more than 30% this year. Goldman Sachs naming it a top pick. Expecting shares to climb almost 25% from here. We will reveal the name in our call of the day. Halftime is back in two minutes. Old Dominion Freight Line was built on keeping promises. With an industry-leading on-time delivery record and low claims rate, we keep promises better than any other LTL freight carrier because we treat every shipment like it's our most important one, which means we do the little things right so that we can keep our promises and you can keep yours too. That's what drives us. To learn how OD can help your business keep its promises, Visit ODFL.com. Old Dominion, helping the world keep promises. B2B selling is tougher than ever, and we feel your pain. If you're struggling to close deals, consider giving LinkedIn Sales Navigator a shot. This sales intelligence platform helps professionals like you engage high-value customers, drive higher revenue, and increase sales performance. Sales Navigator also guides you in targeting the right buyers, highlights key signals such as job changes or which accounts you should prioritize, and uncovers hidden hot prospects so you can find those buyers that are most likely to convert. Fueled by LinkedIn's 1 billion member platform, Sales Navigator gives you the most up-to-date first-party data, enabling you to unlock conversations with the people that matter. Right now, you can try LinkedIn Sales Navigator and get a 60-day free trial at linkedin.com slash halftime report. That is LinkedIn.com slash Halftime Report for a 60-day free trial. Let LinkedIn Sales Navigator help you sell like a superstar today. Just go to LinkedIn.com slash Halftime Report and get started. Welcome back to the Halftime Report. I'm Rahel Solomon, and here is our CNBC News update at this hour. And Surfside, Florida, rescuers have found four more bodies in the remains of the collapsed condo building. That brings the death toll to 16. 147 remain unaccounted for as search efforts now stretch into their seventh day. The mayor of Miami-Dade County asking Americans to take a moment to think about those suffering in the disaster. Please join me in continuing to pray for those who've lost their lives in this unthinkable tragedy and all of their families who are grieving and all of those who are still waiting and waiting and waiting for news. And tonight on the news with Shepard Smith, more documents on the state of that building and talks with rescuers. Tune in at 7 p.m. Eastern. President Biden pledging more resources to battle wildfires. He's also raising wages for federal firefighters to at least $15 per hour. Biden and Vice President Harris meeting with governors of western states to discuss that record-breaking heat wave and also preparations for wildfire season. And how about this one? Yale's drama school will no longer be charging students tuition. That is thanks to a $150 million donation 
from film mogul David Geffen. Yale calls it the largest donation on record in the history of American theater. And Tyler, that also applies to graduate programs. Wow, so, uh, that's fantastic. Quite the good news for those students. Really, that makes such a difference in people's lives. A uh, really wonderful uh, story of philanthropy. Philanthropy. Uh, thank you very much, Rahel. And uh, let's move on to the investment committee, making some moves in this market. And one of them is Joe's. You're adding to Chipotle, my friend. Yes, in fact, I did, Tyler. Uh, Brian Nickel, the management team, doing an excellent job in the digital transformation for Chipotle. Uh, I added it on Monday and again a little bit yesterday. I believe it's going to be taking out the $1,600 level here in the very short term. It's had a remarkable recovery over the month of June, and it's been on that digital transformation. It's been on the creativity surrounding the menu options that uh, management has been providing. So uh, I, I view it as uh, the best quick serve restaurant uh, available to investors, and it certainly has the growth dynamics that are well represented right now as we're seeing a pullback in yields and, and that defensive mentality towards advocating growth being uh, in place. This is one of those companies where, you know, obviously they went through several years ago uh, troubles with food safety. Brian Nickel, it shows you the power of an executive to affect a turnaround and tighten up a company. And he's done a brilliant job. Brilliant, brilliant, uh, ex excellent stewardship. And, and it's really been something that I think has lent itself throughout the entirety of the employee base for Chipotle, I think there's a dramatic difference in terms of customer satisfaction and the way that the employees are approaching uh, the engagement with the customers. Yeah, and we, you, you know, eat some from Chipotle. You don't go away hungry, do you, Joe? Oh, you certainly don't, and you definitely need to exercise afterwards. Yes, you do. All right, folks, let's move on to uh, Dr. Horton, which has been named a top pick at Goldman Sachs, firm bullish on this home builder heading into the second quarter earnings. Pete, you own this one, Dr. Horton. Yeah, it's, uh, you know what, I would agree with them, Tyler, because everything that we see, all the numbers that we see, all say that there is more upside coming, even though they've had an unbelievable run. And this has been a multi-year run. This is not just a run that's just because of the fact of the pandemic and everybody's going out for their houses. This has been a run that's been going on for years. It's a great company. They've done an unbelievable job. Yes, the costs have gone up. By the way, they've been able to pass those along to the customers with these prices as well. So when you really look at this and the fact that they raised their estimates going forward as well, I think that there's a lot of reasons to like a lot of the different builders, but particularly this, this name, I think, right now, given the backdrop of everything that we've got going on economically and, and the movement around the world. Yeah. Uh, Megan, you like home improvement over the home builders. Explain why you favor them. Yeah, I'm a little less optimistic on the trend in uh, new housing construction and housing mm -hmm. demand continuing. I think that those economic indicators might start to, to level off a little bit. Whereas the consumer is still flush with cash. Uh, right. Consumers sitting on three and a half trillion dollars of excess savings over the pre-pandemic trend. Um, and we think home retail is still a good spot for them to be deploying that cash. Right. Um, I think a lot of it will be going into services as the economy continues to move past uh, COVID-19. But home retail is still a spot that we like. All right. Let's talk about AMD. Reiterated a buy at Bank of America. The firm uh, says uh, underappreciated data center success will drive the stock. Joe, you own it. I, I do. I've been trading around it a lot this year um, and bought it below 80 
Uh, so I finally got myself lucky on on one good trade, Tyler. Uh, but there, there's strong momentum, clearly, both fundamentally and technically. And you just have to wonder how much of the missteps from Intel are really benefiting AMD and their ability to grab market share. I suspect a lot more than we think. And again, we're talking about a fantastic management team in place at AMD. So uh, I think it's positioned here above 90. I think it goes back above 100. And uh, I'm certainly looking forward to holding this one for the long term. All right, Amy, I know you, uh, I just want to get your thought on the semiconductors. I know you own uh, NVIDIA, which has been a very good stock. Yes, we've owned NVIDIA for a very long time. Um, we've continued to trim it, and every trim has been wrong, but we, we like the fundamentals there. Valuation is, is high, um, and um, that that does make us keep the position relatively small at this point. But if they can get this ARM transaction through, um, I think it's going to be a big, big win for them. We also own ASML, which is, um, we think, the leader in semi-cap equipment and really well positioned to benefit from all the CapEx um, going into semis and, and each country and each region trying to have their own semiconductor supply chain. Down a little bit today as we see there, down 2% today. Amy, thank you. Stay with us because, uh, you know, Pete's latest trades in unusual activity. They are next on Halftime. We'll be right back. What does it mean to be rich? Maybe it's less about reaching a magic number and more about discovering the magic in life. At Edward Jones, our dedicated financial advisors are the people you can count on for financial strategies that help support a life you love. Because the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Learn more about our comprehensive approach to planning at edwardjones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. All right, let's take a look at where the Dow is high of the day uh, as we wrap up this first half of the year up uh, nearly 200 points, about a half percent at 34,483 right now. So uh, ending on a positive footing uh, for, uh, well, we're not near the end of the day. We're just at halftime here, folks. So uh, but nevertheless, up about 200 points or a half percent right now as we wrap up the first half of 20. What is it? 2021. Time now for unusual activity. And Pete, what are you seeing? Well, Tyler, I got one that start off with, which is GE, and you know GE well, obviously. But I'll tell you what, it's unusual because of the fact that everything we've been seeing of late has been very, very short term. It could be a week out, it could be just a couple of days out, or maybe even a couple of weeks or a July. In this particular case, in GE, they're buying the January 14 calls. They bought 50,000 of these calls, Tyler, for a dollar, with the stock trading just above 13. So expecting some sort of a pretty dramatic move, but that move, they're buying enough time to allow for that move to occur for this stock to actually go up and maybe break through that 14 level, and then who knows. But it's interesting to see because of the fact they're January, and we haven't seen too many January options being bought of late. Everything's been so close. My second one is Altria Group. So that's Philip Morris, the old Philip Morris MO. It's interesting because of the fact that in this one, we're seeing some July call buying. Stock was trading around 50, uh, 47. Now, earlier, back in, in March, it was trading 52. It's pulled back. Here we are at 47. And we've got a pretty substantial buyer of a little over 11,000, just under 12,000 of the 49 calls. So a couple of dollars out of the money. They're inexpensive because this isn't a very volatile name normally. So these are going for anywhere from 12 cents up to 25 cents. I like both of these. The GE trade, I'll be in for quite a while. I've got a lot of time on my hands. 
And in terms of Altria, I think this is a name that can make that move in a fairly short period of time. From 47 to 49, in other words, right? Yep. All right. Yep. Yep. Thanks very much. Big day for IPOs. Uh, We're waiting for the Chinese ride-hailing giant Didi Global, not Didi Gregorius, the baseball player, Didi Global, uh, to uh, begin trading. Uh, Should you get in on the action? We'll debate it when Halftime Reports returns after this. A few big IPOs making their debut today. LegalZoom.com already trading clear, secure, and uh, Sentinel One have begun trading as well. Still waiting for one of the most anticipated IPOs of the day. That would be Didi Global, the China ride-hailing company. And CNBC's Deidre Boza joins us now with more on Didi. Deidre? Tyler, we are awaiting that first trade Didi priced its IPO at $14 a share, but the latest indication is between $16 and 15 cents and $17 at $17. That would give Didi an initial market cap of more than $80 billion. Remember though, that this was priced conservatively at $14 a share. At one point it was thought that it could fetch a market valuation of up to $100 billion, but Public market investors, they haven't been exactly enthusiastic towards the ride-sharing companies. Uber and Lyft have underperformed the broader market since they went public a few years ago. Didi faces all the same complications that Uber and Lyft do, namely regulatory landscape as well as its unprofitability. But add on the layer of Chinese complexity, right? The regulators there are looking at Didi's dominance of that market. It also is still in very expensive businesses like autonomous vehicles and food delivery. So we'll see how it opens. But it does look like it will open above where it priced that $14 range. Back over to you. All right, Deirdre, thank you very much. Let's bring in Bob Pisani at the New York Stock Exchange to uh, take us through today's action in uh, the IPO area and including Didi. Yeah, Tyler, this is the first day in 16 months the NYSE has felt normal. Normal activity, lots of people on the floor, and a lot of activity. This is about a golden moment, as you're going to find, uh, for the IPO business. You heard about uh, what's going on with Didi. We're waiting for that to open in momentarily, literally here. But we've got Sentinel One just opened a few moments ago. Priced at 35, opened at 46. Uh, Clear Secure, the identity verification company, priced at 31, opened at 38.55, just 25 feet away. Everything is opening uh, above the initial indication. And, of course, we had LegalZoom pricing at 28, open at 36.75. We are waiting for it to open. There it is. It just opened here. It's 16.65, as you can see there, after pricing at $14. So, Tyler, we have priced 213 IPOs in the first six months of the year. That is an all-time record. Normally, that's what you do in a full year. And we've got six months more to go in that. We've got about $70 billion that we've raised overall. Uh, This is about as golden moment as you can think of. If I had one thing for the traders to throw out to them, the returns, the average return on an IPO this year has been 26%. Here's the problem. All of the gains are in the first day of trading. 24% of that 26% is in the first day of trading for all of these companies on average. What that means is the institutional investors are the ones making a lot of the money. If you're a retail investor and you're buying in on the first day, you're probably not capturing anything like those kinds of gains. But still, if you're an institution, you're going to be very, very happy. There you see Diddy Global. 
Tyler, back to you. All right. Thank you very much. So, Pete, let me turn to you on the, on the topic that Bob just raised there about about the relative performance of IPOs this year, 26 percent, but most of it in the, on the first day. Are, are, are you a person who would jump in on DD, for example, today or not? Didi is interesting, Tyler, for me, because of the fact that, you know, when you look at what, what's really been going on, and Bob touched on a lot of this, but when I look at a lot of what's going on with these IPOs, they've been reducing how much they're actually putting out there. We've seen some of the numbers. They've had to price them a little bit lower than maybe expected initially. Um, and we've seen some pretty interesting movement. To Bob's point, 26% on the first day. But then after that, we've seen a little bit of that pullback. So I think opportunities are there. Actually, uh, most people are probably not able to get the IPO on the IPO pricing. And so that 26% is probably unlikely for a lot of folks to get. But the reality is you still have opportunities afterwards. As a matter of fact, I bought two last week that were after the IPOs themselves. I bought Bright Health, which is an insurance uh, health care uh, world. Mm-hmm. That's where they, they put themselves. And then I look over at the second one that I did, Sprinkler, which is a SaaS company that I think was way underpriced. And it's shown me that I've been somewhat right on that one because of the fact that after they priced, after it started to move around a little bit, it's made a pretty significant move to the upside. Now, today it's pulling back a little. But I look at some of these names and I I look at where could they go and what does the competition look like? And I think in some cases it literally looks like there is lots of room to the upside because of how they've traded initially in the first call it maybe 48, 72 hours after you get past that initial Mm -hmm. phase of going Mm -hmm. through the IPO itself. So that's something that that makes it interesting. On this one with Didi, if if it actually didn't trade real well, Tyler, come tomorrow or the next day or even in the next week, I'd probably get a lot more interested in the stock. Yeah, uh, uh, priced at 14, open 16.65. Joe, would you be a buyer here or not? Uh, Is this not your kind of merchandise? Ride hailing? No, I'm a ride hailing. I'll buy Uber. Um, yeah. I'd even buy Lyft. I'm, I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna buy Didi here in particular with Chinese regulators cracking down on these technology giants with all these antitrust actions. So uh, no, I don't have an interest in it. 100 billion was the peak valuation. It's coming in obviously well below that. I think investors are sharing my same sentiment. Yeah, as as, as Deirdre pointed out, it's that layer, that extra layer of complexity and regulation yeah. risk. Uh, when, when you take on one of these Chinese companies these days, uh, the Xi Jinping uh, effect there. All righty. Uh, Ask Halftime is next. Send in your questions by video and we'll play them on air. Uh, email us at askhalftime at CNBC.com. We're back after this with some questions. All right, folks, Investment Committee, ready to answer your questions. First up for Amy, Steve in Texas writes, I bought CRISPR Therapeutics recently in the mid-140s. It's had a nice run-up since then. I'm a long-term investor. Should I add to the position, hold, sell? What should this person do, Amy? I would hold it. Um, we, we don't own CRISPR, but we're one of the largest owners of Intellia, which is the mm-hmm. company that over the weekend um, proved that in vivo gene editing, which means inside the body, gene editing works and is an effective treatment. So um, that stock's obviously had a huge run this week, up uh, up over 100 percent. But we, we really like this whole space. And there's only three companies that own the intellectual property around CRISPR, and that's um, CRISPR, Editas, and Intellia. So we like them all. Um, Intellia has been our bet so far, but um, 
but we like CRISPR as well. All right, there you go. Uh, look at that. Intellia Therapeutics up 24% intraday. Wow. All right, uh, next up is uh, for Pete. Sammy in California asks, buy, sell, or hold Bed Bath & Beyond. This has been a volatile one, including today, Pete. Absolutely, Tyler. You're exactly right. And I'll tell you what, with that volatility, I would say it's a trade. I, I, I look at the company and the, because of the moves that we've seen both up and down, I think it's more of a trading vehicle than anything else. And a lot of that has to do with the short interest of this company. They did put out some interesting, they, they beat on revenues, they missed on earnings, but they forecast the revenues to be very strong. So there is some positives there, new management, all the rest of it. But I think you have to really understand what you're getting into when you get into this company right now, because it's somewhat caught up in that whole meme or yeah. rebel sort of world that we're seeing right now in terms of these short interest stocks. I like the bed department, the bathroom. The, the department I really like there is the beyond department. When you go into the beyond, the beyond. you have really <laughs> gone beyond. All right, we've got final <laughs> trades next on Halftime. That's what it says right here. We'll be right back after this. Alrighty, on a day of IPOs, wrapping up a uh, rather blockbuster first half for IPOs, let's look at the featured one of the day, and that is DD Global, now trading at $16.42 uh, or three. It opened at $14 a share. It is, of course, the Chinese ride-hailing uh, service, so opening uh, a good percentage above, as most of the IPOs have done, above the opening price. Time for final trades. Amy, you get to go first. Amy, what's your final? Uh, I like Impinge, the ticker's PI. This is a $1.2 billion ultra-high-frequency RFID company. We think it has really good prospects in front of it, and Imp it's going to be a much bigger company one day. Impinge. All right, Megan, you're next. I'm going to go with international developed equities. We spent a lot of time talking about the U.S., but our second-half playbook, we put more of our chips into non-U.S. equities. Um, areas like Japan and Europe are certainly behind the U.S. in terms of the economic cycle but have more of a cyclical bend, uh, good momentum, and cheap valuations relative to the U.S. All right, Joe, you're next. LPX, take advantage of the recent correction, and obviously we still have a strong housing market. I'd be a buyer here utilizing a 55 stop for risk management. All righty, and finally, Pete. Another one of these wild names, Tyler, and I see some unusual option activity in there, Tilray. I think Tilray at the short term has a chance to make a nice move to the upside. All right, folks, thank you so much. Thanks for watching. That does it for Halftime. The exchange begins now. You've been listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast. You can always catch us live weekdays at 12 Eastern, only on CNBC. The spirit of performance defines Acura, and now it's electric. Introducing the all-electric ZDX, Acura's most powerful SUV yet. While what powers their cars may change, the energy that makes Acura never will. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system and up to 313-mile range on a single charge, and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower? The ZDX is everything they said electric could never be. It was built with the driver in mind, just like Acura's been doing since the beginning. We could talk all day, but the only way to experience this electric performance is to drive it yourself. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com.